This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a thousand miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Working in tech is exciting, fast-paced, and challenging, but sometimes getting your foot in the door can be tough. Skillful runs online immersive programs that help people launch and accelerate their careers in business roles in tech, like strategy and ops, product, strategic finance, and growth. In the program, participants learn directly from mentors who work at companies like Netflix, Uber, Shopify, DoorDash, and Instacart. Grads go on to work in biz ops, product, and growth at high-growth startups through scale-up companies like Scribed, Otter, DoorDash, Instacart, TikTok, and Wealthsimple. You can learn more and apply at joinskillful.com. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Daniel Galati, for the introduction to our guest today, Jeremy Kai, founder and CEO of Italic. Italic is the destination for the best luxury goods without the brand names. In this episode, we touch on his unique C2M business model and luxury, the evolution of e-commerce, learnings from Costco and Amazon, and his approach to scale. Without further ado, here's Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate you coming on the show. So talk to me from the very beginning of Italic. What was the insight and what led you to found it? And how did you approach business model? Because I do think that it's pretty unique. Yeah, so the idea for Italic really came from, I'd have to say it came from my my family. We've been in manufacturing for um, a long time, 40, 40, 50 years. And I think the longer you spend in manufacturing, the more you realize you're producing goods for someone else and that someone else is going to buy your product and sell it for five to 10 times what you sold it to them for. And uh, you don't really have another way to make money besides you know skimming off a little bit of margin for yourself. And all of the upside really goes to the people who own the inventory. So the insight really was whoever owns the inventory kind of owns the upside. And um, as a manufacturer, you really never had an opportunity to do so. Conversely, on the consumer side, you know, what was happening was a lot of these modern so-called direct-to-consumer brands were um, starting up beautifully branded, really modern, you know, appeals uh, to millennials, nowadays to Gen Z and, and so on and so forth. 
Um, and they were trying to take market share from these legacy brands, oftentimes with the claim that they were cutting out the middleman. And as a result, allegedly, you'd be getting a better price point. Um, and I think in the beginning, that was certainly true to, to a degree. But what they really displaced was if you think about the retail supply chain, it's a product that's made at the manufacturer. Um, his long time ago, it'd go through a distributor, it'd get placed at a retailer, and then a, a customer buys it. And really, there's like those three kind of intermediaries, the brand, the uh, retailer, and the distributor, all of whom take a pretty sizable cut because they're buying the inventory, marking it up, and selling it to the next party. So yeah, direct-to-consumer brands really have claimed to have cut out the the retailer, but by and large, Facebook and Google have now um, replaced that function. So that's where you um, acquire a customer. That's where you spend to kind of pay for marketing. Um, So those prices now have inflated back to basically what we're prior to DTC kind of era um, price points. So anyways, the the point being, um, customers are paying a really, really high markup from the actual cost of the goods without really knowing so. Um, or if you're savvy enough, you, you, uh, you can find other ways like secondhand, but, but generally like products are marked up many times. Um, and then on the manufacturing side, even though you're producing the finished product, you actually have no way to make more than, let's say, four to five percent of the final retail sale. So on a hundred dollar transaction, like on a hundred dollar, let's say, sweater, you as a manufacturer are making four to five dollars. Anyways, the, 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 the point of Vitalik really was to kind of bridge that gap. If we, we, the thesis was if we have the discipline to do everything that a brand and, and retailer does, but without taking that margin for ourselves, but instead abstracting that and giving that to the manufacturer while still delivering a really high quality of goods, um, really high quality of service to a customer, you know, that's a win-win for uh, the manufacturer and also a win-win for the, the customer because you're paying a lower price point for a higher quality product. And for the manufacturer, you're able to take inventory risk through a marketplace model and uh, without changing anything about your existing supply chain, because um, we provide all those services for you and you can earn higher margins, typically double or triple kind of your current profits. Also, one more thing that uh, you're really not gaining much by vertically integrating. You might shave off, let's say, 10 to 20% off of, you know, let's say in-house fulfillment, you might shave off 10 to 20% at scale from in-house production. And of course, there's advantages to doing so, like faster turnarounds, more control over your inventory, stronger quality controls, um, you know, so on and so forth. There's there's definitely advantages to doing so if there's if those are the reasons. But if it's generally around price point, um, it's not really worth the optimization because 10 to 20% changing on cost of goods isn't actually going to move the needle at all when your customer acquisition cost is actually like double what the cost of the product actually was. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I, I think the the vertical integration, I think is helpful in many ways, but it's also like, if it's around price, it, it generally doesn't make sense too. Yeah, that's a great point. And it just go, and it goes to show, you know, another thing that we've certainly talked about that we're touched on here is just, you know, since growth marketing now, it's become so saturated with uh, Facebook and Google that, the majority of your costs are going to be going towards those. So you're not actually, which then I may imagine causes rising prices and what have you. And so the customer kind of pays the tax as well. So with all this being said, it's it's this idea of, you know, C to M and customer to manufacturer, which I know is pretty popular in with Pindodo and other marketplace type of businesses, mostly in, in Asia. How did you stumble upon this idea that, you know, C to M, like this concept could actually work in the Western world? Yeah, you know, first of all, I, I'm glad you, you you know what that is because it's still a relatively niche term. Nowadays, everyone knows like 
DTC and, and you know, you can apply that anywhere, but CDM is, is something that historically in the past maybe five, six years have, has largely been China only. And, and increasingly in the past couple of years, it's gone global, uh, kind of led by companies like Wish and AliExpress and, and also nowadays like Xi'an, Halara, Cider, so on and so forth. So I think um, the idea with CDM is that you're basically removing the last intermediary in a supply chain, which is the brand or the, the retailer. Um, and instead, the, the platform or the marketplace model, um, our job is to connect you as a customer straight to the manufacturer. And we provide all the intermediary kind of services that allow that transaction to happen. So in the case of Wish, for example, that might mean connecting you straight to a dropship merchant and they'll dropship straight to you. Whereas in this case of Vitalik, we you know, have a lot of that technology and, and supply chain stack, not vertically integrated all through partners, but done so in a way where we would uh, we wouldn't drop ship. We would provide that fulfillment service and logistics um, to make sure that a customer can get an order in three to five days because that's important to us. I think the the idea of CDM uh, originally I think worked in China mostly because the supply chain. Um, had two advantages. One was extreme cost efficiency. You can get overnight, you know, delivery of a product from Beijing to Shanghai for like $2, right? It, it's incredibly affordable. And like I said, the, the second point is, is that it's very sophisticated by now to the point where it can provide uh, really, really fast shipping and do so in a way that's like a really high quality of, of customer experience. So, but if you were to try to apply that same experience globally, you know, let's say to the West, most goods nowadays is still made in in Asia, whether that's Vietnam or or you know Indonesia or China or whatever it is, India. And I think the challenge with CDM is that historically it's been reliant on a dropship infrastructure. Where if I am a customer in Shanghai and I'm placing an order from a manufacturer in in Shenzhen, like the local dropship infrastructure is is supportive and advanced enough to which I can have a great experience and a great price point in, in achieving that. Whereas if you were to try to do that exact same thing where I'm a customer in New York ordering from a manufacturer and that same manufacturer in Shenzhen, it's going to be a terrible experience because it's going to take forever. If you want it fast, you're going to pay an arm and a leg for it. If you want it slow, it's going to be a terrible customer experience. If you want a high quality product, you know, it's not vetted. So really the idea with Italic was what if we actually were able to kind of provide a lot of the same services in between a manufacturer and a customer that a brand, a high-end brand or reseller uh, would do. So think about fast fulfillment, they're a great customer experience, uh, great, like highly vetted quality of product. And what would that look like? And would that actually appeal to a middle-class customer in, in the West? Now, the, the irony, I think, is that CGM already has worked in the West, like very, very, very successfully. The majority of merchants on Amazon now are, are Chinese. Uh, which I know would probably still surprise a lot of people today. The majority of uh, products are, are still made in Asia. And you know the fastest growing retail segment uh, uh, in value, both online as well as offline, like with Dollar General and, and Family Tree and so on and so forth, as well as um, like the Sheehan's of the world, that's all already cross-border, already straight from the manufacturer. And I think it's really penetrated hard into the lower ticket, kind of lower income um, value segment. Um, what it hasn't done is penetrated into mid-market and, and kind of higher income, which is kind of the whole um, appeal of Italic is, hey, wouldn't it be nice to shop from the same manufacturers as high-end brands, but for a much lower price point? And I think that value concept is actually universal. You know, we have literal billionaires who shop on Italic to save money because it feels good to do so and you feel smart in doing so. 
And on the flip side, you know, um, if you want to buy the branded op- uh, product, you can still buy from the brand, which will always exist. You'll still buy from the retailer. So CTM, I think, is like a really universal concept that I think has done really, really well in the past five to 10 years and globally in the West and, and even longer in, in, in Asia. One other kind of last thing I'll, I'll add is... Um, I think if you look at the Chinese ecosystem for e-commerce, which is arguably the most kind of advanced in the world by now, is uh, is that from maybe, let's say, 2008 to maybe 2015 or so, um, it was really dominated by two players, you know, Alibaba and all of their kind of various arms, Tmall, Taobao, 1688, and, and so on and so forth, and JD. Um, JD being the more vertically integrated kind of JD is the actual Amazon of, of China, not, not Alibaba, for many different reasons. But I think in, in those two cases, we had assumed that e-commerce as a as an e- as an industry and, and market was basically done like it's those are the two players that's it forever you can do niche things but that's about it what ended up happening is like of course you have like smaller players like uh, red or, or little red book which which is like live streaming Bilibili, you know so on and so forth which is small segment but the the biggest kind of entrance uh, was PDD like you said um, and a lot of PDD kind of similar type of concepts that actually went from DTC or shopping from a retailer or shopping from a brand on branded merchandise and on branded products uh, or on branded storefronts like on Tmall into more like, hey, I'm going to buy products straight from the manufacturer because of value. Um, so in the past five years, the fastest growth by far in, in China has actually been in, in C2M. So um, yeah, it's an interesting you know concept, which which I think is, hasn't globalized um, you know really broadly yet. But I, I do think it's it's uh, coming in. That's kind of what uh, Italic is is kind of on the edge of. So, a number of those of those examples, which I really do appreciate. You talked a lot about how uh, CTM has mostly been like the case study around it. Thinking of Wish and Pindodo, uh, just uh, that's top of mind. It's for like the price sensitive consumer. And where you think the opportunity is, or what hasn't been been done before, is look at that maybe mid market or higher end consumer. Why do you believe that there's an opportunity there? Um, for those types of consumers, how do you think about your consumers? Because especially on the high-end consumers, I'd imagine that brand is so important and you're eliminating the brand layer. Yeah, it's a, no, you're, you're right. And I think um, it's fair to be, you know, to to be skeptical of, of that. And I think what I, I believe, at least, is that there's two types of shopping behavior from here on out. And that's shopping for products that you want to buy a story or buy a, into a community of. And that can be like, you know, buying into a Glossier product. because You really love the story of the founder or, or the community buying into like an away luggage because you you really love like the whole concept of like again, the founders or, or or the story behind it or the the value segment of that you know to be fair actually those are probably two uh two bad examples because they're still value driven in a way because glossy is affordable relative to the legacy counterparts in a way is also kind of affordable relative to let's say like a remoa or you know to me segment so i i think um and then on the on the flip side, like if you want rational kind of value-driven purchases, you're going to buy from non-branded versions of those. And, and I think that's true in basically every single customer segment and every single product category in, in the US at least and also in the West. You know, the, the irony with with like higher end product is that some of the the best merchandise and like some of the best performing brands, um, let's say, let's actually take a handbag, for example. It it is the arguably the most brand dependent type of product because you're literally buying a bag with a logo on it and you're paying a ton of money for that logo. But some of the best performing uh, handbags 
in the world are Michael Kors and Coach, of which if you actually ask a higher income customer, like that's actually not comparable to, let's say, like a Louis Vuitton or Prada, but like it's perceived as such by an actual... Like if you actually talk to like an, a legitimate, actual middle class American, those are perceived as really high end. So you know, it's... it's um. I think there's a lot of like, you know, uh, I guess like psychology around um, a customer makes a purchasing decision. And, and I think in terms of the, um, you know, question that you asked around, how do you convince someone to kind of buy a premium product when they could actually buy, um, they, they have the disposable income to buy the branded version of that, I, I think ultimately comes down to like, do you feel good about your purchase and like what satisfies that kind of itch, if, if you will. And in a lot of cases, like it's not people buying the brand to feel like they bought into the community. It's actually just like they want to feel like they got a good deal. That's why like, I think you and I probably would still go on Wirecutter to feel like, you know, even though we could afford the most expensive option, probably, you know, we still want to make sure that we feel good about our purchase. So I think there's a lot there that we could probably unpack, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely complicated. And, and I think the, the interesting thing for me is like the biggest retail class by and large forever uh, so, and since basically the, the 70s has been like the middle class American. And, uh, and that's actually been going away to a large degree. Like the biggest growth has been in luxury and in, um, and in value. And, but I actually think online, at least the biggest growth actually still is, is, in, um, is, is targeting that kind of middle class customer. And by the way, when I say middle class, it's like not the bi-coastal elite, like, you know, city dweller who thinks like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like an actual, you know, 50 to 100K uh, income earner who, who graduated college with that. And that type of customers is very different. Um, and, and I think value deeply speaks to them. Synthesizing and thinking about C to M for and really at the beginning of Italic, how did you approach manufacturers? What was that process like? And what was the initial reaction? It was awful. <laughs> it's like, we, you know, the story I tell is like Polo, who's one of our first like sourcing managers, he and I met literally a hundred, oh, well over a hundred. Like I, I like to say 150. At, at some point we stopped counting, but like a ton of manufacturers. Every single day we, we visited a manufacturer or every workday at least, like, or, or someone who knew one, just to kind of, you know, learn the language, speak in manufacturing terms and in the way that they understood. And of course, like coming from a manufacturing background really helps uh, on that, of which both, both Paul and I did. But I think that the biggest like challenge really was that if you think about it, we're basically getting a manufacturer uh, who has historically always received cash um, upfront as a deposit for purchase order to basically front that for us. It's kind of saying like, hey, make this product for me and you pay for it, not me. Because we don't want to take the inventory risk. Um, as a marketplace, we want you to, but in return, you can earn higher yield on that inventory. So if you think about it from the manufacturing standpoint, it's like, here's these two guys, like no idea what they do. And that's a really challenging ask. But I think the the realization was, hey, this is something that the younger, a lot of manufacturing is family businesses. Uh, a lot of the younger generations actually want this. They've seen the rise of e-commerce. They've seen like the client base diversify into more and more direct-to-consumer brands from the West or more and more kind of online brands who sell in like Tmall and and Ali, um, you know, domestically, um, how do I get on, in on that? Because as a manufacturer, it doesn't actually matter if I'm, you know, selling to the point I make is like to Everlane or J Crew. I skim the 15 to 20% margin on, on the cost of goods. And that's my take, regardless of if it's to an innovative client or to a legacy client. So the ask for Italic is actually something that I think a lot of them have thought about and, and want. I think that the difficulty is like, okay, how do you do this without fulfillment infrastructure? How do you do this without a technology portal to tell you how you did? How do you do this without automated payouts? How do you do this without like zero customers? Like, you know, like why would you put $100,000 into producing scarves 
which was one of our first products um, for Italic when Italic doesn't even have a single customer yet. So that was really the, the hard thing about marketplaces. I know, you know, right before we started recording, we briefly talked about how it's really hard to kind of kickstart a marketplace from a cold start position, especially when the supply is dependent on having infrastructure in place, which is different than a pure play marketplace model, um, which can be peer-to-peer. In our case, it has to be managed where a lot of infrastructure has to exist day one for us to fulfill a single order. But, um, you know, I think uh, it was important for us to kind of do it right from the start versus kind of hack around it uh, to to kind of build trust with the manufacturers. And a lot of those initial kind of 100, 150 and now are, are kind of active merchants on our platform. Do you ever get, since manufacturers are now going direct-to-consumer through um, Italic, do you ever get manufacturers that say, okay, we're now starting to you know, have this relationship directly with the customer. Maybe we should start selling our own brands on Italic. Has that ever kind of happened or kind of crossed your mind? This is a, a good kind of segue into a broader conversation, which is we don't see ourselves as a brand. You know, the, the comps that we often kind of get compared to are like, let's say, Muji or Uniqlo or... You know, types of uh, orders are, are like brands that are brands. And like when you buy a Muji pencil, it's a Muji pencil. When you buy a uh, shirt from Uniqlo, it's not like a brand different kind of merchant or branded shirt. You know, we really see ourselves more as like a heavily managed marketplace, similar to um, the Airbnbs of the world, where we have merchants on our platform and we connect them to uh, buyers and, and customers. Um, and our job is to kind of make sure that we make that as seamless and, and profitable as possible and also keep the prices low for our customers. I think on, on your point on like, you know, manufacturers having their own in-house brands, many of them have tried. And, and you know, I've talked to a lot of manufacturers by now. There, I've almost never seen it like really work. Um, just think about like the competency you need to have a brand. Um, and then think about the competency you need to run a business, uh, a manufacturing company. It's like night and day in terms of what you need to do. But on the flip side, you know, there are cases where there are uh, manufacturer brands that we believe are actually best in class in both quality and price point that we can achieve. And in those cases, we actually would want to take that manufacturer brand, make no changes to it and bring it onto our platform. There's a couple examples of this that we've done in furniture, in office furnitures. Um, in, in pet products and, and similar our jewelry. And I, I expect that to continue to be the case and grow actually as a segment of our kind of merchant base. But but I do think it, um, you know, uh, it'll be a mix of kind of in-house italic brands, if you will, um, that are uh, that we develop and then also kind of manufacturer brands that we believe kind of hit the mark in terms of quality and, and, um, and price. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. What were the first products that you listed on... Um, italic or maybe ask the manufacturer to create? So we had three categories. One was handbags and small leather goods. One was those cashmere scarves I I mentioned. Um, And one was prescription eyewear. Arguably three of the... Some it was probably three of the worst categories to, to choose, <laughs> not because those were the ones that we def, like decided to go after, but more so because that's who we could work with uh, initially. Um, prescription eyewear for obvious reasons due to like all the legal and technical complexity around selling prescription, you know, handbags and love smaller other goods because of the brand dependency. I'm still very proud of our, our kind of merchants and and um and uh and products that we have in the category, but like yeah, it's it's a hard product to sell an unbranded version of. Um and we've done it many times over, but it, it is tricky. And then um and then cashmere scarves, um not necessarily because it's a bad product to sell, but it's also just um it's fairly pricey, um, even at cost. So, um, so uh, to ask a customer to trust an unbranded version when you can 
um, by the brand version for for double or triple um, appeals to a lot of people, but it's still like we're talking you know north of a hundred dollars for the most part. But yeah, we we would take who who we could get. I know we've kind of talked about the supply side quite extensively here. Well, let's focus on demand. How did you figure out how to acquire maybe your first customers? How did you also think about segmentation and targeting? Our first customers, and even to this day, were really driven by, and I know a lot of companies talk about this, but we're driven by word of mouth. Italics is a fairly unique uh, business, right? Like, where else can you buy a product from the same manufacturers as high-end brands? And we call those out. Um, for for really low prices and and if you think about it, take a second. There really aren't that many places where that value proposition is possible. So a lot of our current customer bases has come from referral, come from kind of press uh, and PR. We obviously have tested the standard playbook um, that all of the other marketplace businesses and and also brands have have run thus far, um, including a paid mix, a, a brand mix. But we really haven't been aggressive about kind of the customer and and consumer side of the business quite yet. We've mainly been, how do we make sure our supply chain, our product offering can walk in lockstep with the growth in our customer base? And I think we've done that uh, fairly well thus far. Um, but soon, I think we'll we'll start getting a lot more um, acquisitions. So I, I guess the, the simple way to say it is like, we didn't have to try super hard to kind of get those first customers, um, uh, mainly because I think the value proposition is, is fairly differentiated and, and unique in the market. Got it. Let's also think about like how do you also approach um, talk me a little bit about your uh, your business model. Obviously, you take part of the transaction uh, similar to Amazon, but you also have a subscription fee for consumers. How does that work? Was the plan always to start with a, a subscription? The plan was we you know from day one back in twenty eighteen when we first like launched the v, the first kind of MVP of of the consumer product. We had a membership that we kind of put a pause on because of the product offering we had at the time. It really didn't make sense to to offer that quite yet. But um, but I think if you really okay, so two things like how do we make money and and uh, and I guess like more broadly, what's the kind of plan going forward? Um, we make money through three ways. It's it's very simple. Um, we make a very small cut on the um, the product sales um, that we orchestrate for our, our merchants to the customer. Two is uh, the membership fee, like like you said, um, and that allows us to um, you know really get aggressive around like what we can do to satisfy our, our customers and deliver a top notch customer experience. Um, and then three is uh, merchant services. So think about fulfillment, creative services. You know, design development, et cetera, et cetera. There's no kind of uh, nothing too unique we do here compared to let's say an Amazon or Farfetch. But but I think that's broadly speaking how how we monetize is through those three kind of uh, streams. And then going forward, what the membership really allows us to do is you know we build um, a really deep uh, loyalty and engagement with our customers because we can basically take that membership fee and abstract it to acquisition cost upfront, of course, but also beyond that. Um, it allows us to develop a lot of and launch a lot of products that a normal standalone brand would not be able to or would be very cost prohibitive to. You know, for our type of model, if you wanted to launch like the 1500, 2000 SKUs that we have today, it'd be extremely expensive to do that as a retailer, let alone as a brand. So I think for us, like that, the, the membership fee allows us to kind of do this in, in a controlled manner where we can kind of make sure our supply is meeting the demand from our customer base and also expand that as the customer base grows. There's things we're going to do to bring down that barrier to make sure that more people can try it up front. And then the membership will kind of become more and more interesting as it becomes um, more of a service offering that improves your shopping experience. But um, that, that'll take a little bit of time. So 
I think the the way to think about it is like the advantage of a membership driven business and subscription driven business is that you can use that fee to compete horizontally in many different ways that a standalone, you know, vertical competitor can't do. So for example, if I'm only selling betting and I don't have, you know, let's say a subscription or membership component, my only ability to kind of gain more revenue from a customer or upsell you is by selling you more betting or or kind of ancillary products that like historically have not been a, a a very consistent, uh, successful playbook that that these brands have run. On the on the flip side, as a kind of membership high margin type of business, um, with that 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 subscription offering, it gives us the budget and ability to kind of both cross sell you from a product perspective. So not only can we sell you bedding, but we can subsidize our ability to sell you dinnerware or, or kitchenware, whatever it is. Um, but also kind of provide additional services that that generally improve your shopping experience. So free shipping, like you said, is a great example of that. And we can use, we can draw our margin down from our subscription revenue and membership revenue. On the flip side, there's a lot, a whole lot more that I think we can start offering to our members um, that uh, that'll just improve their shopping experience that in a, in a way that a standard brand or retailer can't. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, stay tuned. We'll, we'll have some cool stuff coming, but That'll take some time. Cool. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And when did you decide to fundraise? And what was that process like? What were maybe investors' initial reaction? Yeah, you know, the market has changed a lot in um, in e-commerce. I'll be the first to say that, like, with a couple of uh, the the bigger kind of like uh, first wave of direct consumer brands kind of going public and and now maturing into sizable businesses that um but the it's no longer like the wild west if you will of 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 running this type of model in direct consumer brands so and that's also a big why a reason why we don't like to be compared to them because we i feel like genuinely have a fundamentally different business and monetization model so I, and not to say like one is better than another but anyways for for fundraising i think um the investor i think um kind of reaction is like hey this is basically a home run or you're going to swing and miss like it's 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 either going to get big or you're going to go to zero pretty fast and we'll find out because the category like you said earlier doesn't exist for this customer segment in the west and um and there's a lot of comps of it working in asia but um but it's totally unproven and, and we're kind of the first to do it in the west and nowadays there's like smaller kind of companies that have tried to do similar things um even h&m notably um, has started like their own division to kind of offer this exact same value proposition to a T. So, you know, we'll see how, how things, the, the market plays out. Obviously for us, like fundraising is going to be an important part of the game. But, but yeah, I think investors generally like get it, especially if you have any notion of what happens in Asia. But yeah, I think it does take a big, I guess, dose of needing to believe that this will work um, versus like seeing immediate traction because it, it is more of a moonshot model, if you will. I know you, your first company, Fountain.com, it was... Enterprise SaaS software. This is obviously consumer facing, quite different. What were some of the differences, maybe to your approach and some of the learnings that you had to do um, in order to transition from an enterprise software business to one that is that lends itself more more towards consumer? One of the hardest things about being a founder is that the second you think you know how something works or you're doing a good job, you instantly, you know get hit in the head with like realizing how little you know. I think and that was a big big learning lesson for me going from Fountain which was a completely different business in all ways in all respects to Italic which um which is a managed marketplace. So so yeah, I think uh to, to put it bluntly it, it was a really hard transition in in all ways like the talent stack 
uh, and, and team and org structure that we've had to develop is night and day compared to the enterprise model that we, we had built at Fountain. The um, ability, the way we acquire customers um, is also night and day um, with how um, with how Italic works. The, the even simple things like fundraising or or kind of comp structures, you know, um, and how kind of uh, how to incentivize a team. And consumer is totally different uh, on the fundraise side. You know, the, the funny thing is like five, six years ago, the, the narrative um, when we were building Fountain was that um, enterprise SaaS is like, SaaS in general is just like a really, really stable, repeatable way to kind of build a business. But consumers where all the big outcomes are. And nowadays it's completely opposite, right? Where enterprise SaaS and SaaS in general have, have taken up the lion's share of, of, of um, kind of valuations. So um, in consumer, it's, it's arguably a really hard place to operate, especially um, if you're building a, a deeply infrastructure heavy kind of real world component uh, driven business, which Italic is in every sense of the word. So, um, so yeah, I, I could talk more specifically, but I think broadly speaking, it was a really difficult transition. But I do think we made it successfully on the, on the other side, and now we know like what type of team, what type of you know work we're we're trying to build here, what type of company. So, um, but it was an awkward awkward uh, period. What are we gonna kind of see from you from Italic over the next five or ten years? What what is the vision of what Italic will be? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite questions because I, I have like I don't have a a you know super like investor friendly uh super awesome big vision for my answer is really simple actually it's it's um italic today is not going to be different than what italic will be 10 years from now the, the 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 way we think about it is we have a flywheel you know i know that investors love to say that as well where the more customers we get the more leverage we have to convince manufacturers to join the more manufacturers we have as merchants the more products we can offer the more products we can offer, the more customers we can acquire who previously might not have been interested. So really, if you think about it, the, the only two big changes that will happen from between now and, and five, 10 years from now is that one, we'll have more customers and two, we'll have more products. And the only thing that I want to keep consistent is that our customers are really happy and that our products are consistently the highest quality at the lowest possible price point. So um, I think you know underneath the hood is where a lot of things will change. We really think about Italic as like a three-legged stool where one leg is products. Um, how do we consistently deliver what our customers are asking for um, as quickly as possible with the right price point and quality targets? Um, two is technology. How do we build the infrastructure to kind of power our entire supply chain and deliver really great customer experiences? And then three is operations. How do we kind of get this product from point A to point B as quickly, efficiently, and affordably as possible? So um, I think, you know, really... I guess five to 10 years from now, we'll just be spinning that flywheel a lot smoother and with more uh, points of strategic leverage that allow us to retain our customers and our merchants better um, and also make sure that we can deliver more and more of what they're asking for. As you um, expand and the the flywheel gets faster and faster and you're maybe onboarding new manufacturers, are you going to become more rigorous maybe in terms of um, requirements from manufacturers or maybe... Are you going to have certain requirements from uh, from manufacturers if they actually do want to come on board? Um, Italic. Yeah, we we've gotten a lot better at this over the years. I, I think historically it's been like a very strong case by case. Like, what is the best possible manufacturer we can work with in this respective category? And let's go find them and let's go convince them and not like you know uh, kind of budge on that unless. 
they need some specific requirements to join the platform. Um, we've gotten really good about standardizing how we do this, um, both from a sourcing perspective on our team there, um, as well as from a category management perspective on how we kind of develop these categories and how we develop you know, the, the products in a way that is really customer centric and, uh, you know, another buzzword there, but, um, but really I think it's true in our case where it's like, we should know before we launch a product, is this something that customers actually want? Are these the features that the customer wants? And is this at a price point that the customer would buy it at? Um, and we should be pretty good about that. As italic scales, our rigor around, um, manufacturer, uh, screening and, and, um, and sourcing should actually, I actually don't think we'll change so much more so maybe just like standardize and, and professionalize a little bit more um, as we bring on, you know, manufacturers, some different categories, different geos, you know, so on and so forth. And then I think secondly, probably will change more is just like the sheer um, supply, ch- the, the sheer complexity of the supply chain that we have to run to support different types of manufacturers and suppliers. For example, do we need cold chain logistics? Do we need kind of temperature controlled logistics? Do we need um, to take in, you know, uh, our own kind of type of uh, fulfillment method, you know, so on and so forth. A lot of these things are think, I, I think are things that we can do to strengthen our moat in the merchant side that will allow us to deliver a better customer experience and a, a broader customer uh, product assortment to customers. How do you also think about making the manufacturers, making sure that you kind of make them all happy on pages when you, for example, search for a, a specific product that they're the top product or, or, or consumers are able to see them, right? Because, or else if they can't, why would they be on italic? The right answer here, I think, is um, on one hand, it's, it should be algorithmic. It actually shouldn't be a hand merchandise, like hand kind of sorted way to kind of paint a page per se. But instead, it should be, hey, does this manufacturer have good products? Um, how do you know they're good products? Okay, it's probably good reviews, fast shipping time, so on and so forth. Two, is it uh, is it a new product? Um, so newness kind of affects it. Um, you know, basically, like on the dynamic generation of kind of feeds is um, that's one thing that I think is is the most objective way to, to do this, and you know, to make sure that manufacturers are presented in a fair model. Our job then is to build the, the the best kind of way to to paint pages based off of user preferences and manufacturer quality and product quality. Basically, the the way I'd frame it is like it's actually it shouldn't be a manufacturer choice. It actually should be like is this the best thing that the customer should be kind of experiencing? And then the second one is just like okay, we if we if we want to do that, we can also do it in conjunction um, with kind of really strong site merchandising and curation from our in-house team of experts. So what do we think like this product uh, would, would go well with? We can do that dynamically based off of browsing behavior and like other kind of um, pure data-driven methods, or we can actually just assign it to our internal team who knows better than anyone what types of products go well together because um, we develop those. So I think it'll be, you know, and this is not just italic, this is literally every single, you know, marketplace e-com business in the world. And it's a tricky, it's a tricky technical challenge, but um, but I do think there are right ways to go about it and wrong ways. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I I'd imagine it's tricky as well because on one hand, you want consumer choice, right? It's a marketplace. You, you want consumer choice. But at the same time, you want to make sure that they're that they're picking, you know, uh, top quality products, which I would imagine that's also can be quite challenging. What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I was gifted uh, the Rational Optimist uh, a couple of years ago. It, it's it's exactly like the title sounds. So no, <laughs> it's the, you don't really need to be a genius to kind of learn anything from it. But it's basically a framework to kind of approach life and and also work and in, in your your personal life with um, you know a healthy dose of uh, optimism, but doing so you know while being grounded and in, in kind of like I guess being rational. So yeah, it's it's exactly like the title says. It's great. And then professionally, I think. Um, this is so corny, but I, I I guess two books I really loved. I'm sure like 90% of your audience has already read, but uh, I, I did the Teal Fellowship like a long time ago, five in one of the first batches. And um, and uh, and we were all gifted like uh, zero to one, which was uh, which is great. And then um, and then I also can't be a, you know, uh, a tech founder without loving kind of the uh, the, the pain. So the hard thing about hard things is, is also great. So no, no new recommendations there, but just love those two books. No, that's great. That's great. Really excited to add those to the, uh, uh to the book list. We've had a, a, a few people as you probably aren't, aren't surprised recommend zero to one and also the hard thing about hard things. Uh, but the rational optimist is a first. So, uh, so we're so excited to add that one to the book list. Actually, if you like, if people do like the hard thing about hard things, I feel like it's a really like there's no genre for it, but it's basically founder stories of like how how much their life sucked during the building process. But there's other books there that I think were great. Like Shoe Dog, obviously, it was similar in in, in that genre. Like one that I think less tech people um, have have read is is um, Bob Iger's uh, Ride of a Lifetime. I, I thought that was great as well. And then probably the 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 the, the least known one is. Um, Sam Walton from Walmart actually uh, wrote one as well. It's fantastic. It's it's really good. Um, so th- that genre I love I love because um, you can really relate to it. No, that's great. Um, Shoe Dog is number one most recommended book on this uh, on the podcast. Right of a lifetime certainly gets a lot of ranks. <laughs> I think we only had one other person though that that recommended uh, Sam Walton's one, and um, I I should definitely read that. Um, it sounds sounds really fantastic. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed our, our conversation. And yeah, I feel like we talked about a lot, of, a lot of stuff today. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Jeremy. You can follow him on Twitter at jjeremykai. That's J-J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-I. And check out italic.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 